This is episode 190 of That Shakespeare Life. Bring our podcast into your classroom with access to our video streaming library, printable worksheets, lesson plans, and activities that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Unlock all these benefits when you become a member here at That Shakespeare Life, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at castycash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Tony Shaw. My full essay, which is available on www.independent.academia.edu slash Tony Shah, is called History of London Bridge, the Origins of the Bridge House Yard and Bridge House Estates, a review of their early history as civic and religious institutions. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. The Master of the Armouries had a breastplate made of this English iron, tested it with a pistol, and found it actually was very poor. The pistol bullet went through it. At the same time, imported steel from Germany was made into a corresponding breastplate and resisted the pistol shot. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Metal was used in Shakespeare's lifetime to create a variety of items, including swords, armor, guns, and even horseshoes. In one reference from Henry IV Part II, Shakespeare draws attention to the fact that a, quote, smith, the term for someone who works with metal, was responsible for creating some of these items when the character Davy says, quote, here is now the smith's note for shoeing and plow irons, end quote. That comes from Act Five, Scene One. While most of Shakespeare's uses of the word smith in his plays refer specifically to a goldsmith, that term being used at least 11 times in his works, there were other kinds of smiths like silversmiths, blacksmiths, tinsmiths, and coppersmiths who worked in Shakespeare's lifetime. Shakespeare gives us a glimpse of this metallurgical enterprise when the character Hubert de Burr in King John, Act 4, Scene 2, says, quote, I saw a smith stand with his hammer whilst his iron did on the anvil cool, end quote. We can tell from what references Shakespeare leaves us that metallurgy and working with metals held commonplace in society for his lifetime. But seeing as how most of us don't visit the blacksmith today on a regular basis, we asked our guest, Alan Williams, an archaeometallurgist at the Wallace Collection, to visit with us today and take us back to Shakespeare's lifetime, where we can explore exactly how the metal was acquired, used, and molded into some of these essential items for Shakespeare's lifetime. Alan Williams is called the man who fires neutrons at medieval armor. He is an archaeometallurgist, a specialist in the pre-modern processes of creating and working with metals at the Wallace Collection in London. For over 20 years, Alan has worked analyzing the world-famous collection of armor at the Wallace Collection to examine the techniques that were used in creating those pieces. He's the author of two of the most authoritative works on 16th century metal works, including The Knight and the Blast Furnace that explores the production of armor, and The Sword and the Crucible, which looks 
looks at how swords were made. Find links to Alan's book as well as more information on his work at the Wallace Collection in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Alan. Welcome to the show. Hello. Most of Shakespeare's references in his works for Smith are in regards specifically to a goldsmith. Whenever it's another kind of metal being fashioned, the craftsman or artisan responsible is referred to simply as Smith. Alan, would Shakespeare's society in England have made a distinction between different kinds of metal workers, or was everyone who worked in metal considered a smith? Well, I think that iron was so much more common that so many tools and pieces of equipment were made of iron, that there were far more workers of iron than there were of other metals, so that it would make sense for the sake of simplicity to say smith, because nine out of ten metal workers would have been working with iron, so there was no need to call them an ironsmith. Copper and similar metals were much scarcer, much more expensive, and the number of people working them would have been a small minority of the total number of metal workers. I know that copper is a metal that was historically popular in England through to the 1700s, but Alan, would items like tea kettles or pots have been made of copper for Shakespeare's lifetime? Oh, yes, but you would have tinned the inside first before using them because, of course, copper uh, salts are poisonous and traces dissolving when you boiled water in them would probably poison the users. So would it have been a coppersmith or a tinsmith that worked on the pots or both? Yes, exactly so. Copper was very expensive. It's still much more expensive than iron. And copper alloys were used when you could not use a viable alternative. Bells, for example, were made of bronze. Cheaper forms of bronze like caldarium were around in the Middle Ages, but quite unsuitable for domestic vessels where food and drink was going to be boiled up in them. One of the items we traditionally think of as being made of metal is a suit of armor. In Shakespeare's lifetime, were English soldiers still wearing suits of metal armor? Oh, yes, in large quantities. In the late 16th century, because of the threat of Spanish invasion, the militia in England was largely re-equipped uh, with guns rather than longbows, and large quantities of armor were bought. Although armour had been made in England since the 14th century, in an emergency, if you wanted a few thousand suits, you had to import them from Germany. And large amounts of infantry armour were bought in the 1570s and 1580s and bought at what was a very low price because it was being mass-produced in Germany and imported via Hamburg and Antwerp. Well, you've alluded to this in your answer to whether or not they were still making the armor, but this was prior to the Industrial Revolution. So how were these thousands of armor getting made? Were there factories or how would you accomplish getting outfitting the entire English military? Well, armor manufacture was never really a cottage industry. It, it was operated on a considerable scale from the 15th century onwards. And people built large furnaces to make iron for all sorts of reasons. But the furnaces that we're talking about were something like 10 feet tall. Uh, 
It's it's not the village blacksmith. And iron in quantity was made not just for rubber, of course, but for things like reinforcements in cathedrals and so on. The armor industry of Germany, for example, was, and for that matter, North Italy, was capable of supplying suits by the dozen, by the hundred, and wholesalers would offer the English crown something like a thousand suits of infantry armor at a time. So it was a substantial industry. I found a German painting of a gunsmith from 1613 that shows a single man working in a shop with a matchlock firearm hanging on the wall behind him. And he's working with a file on a small anvil to repair what appears to be a handgun on his table. I'll share this picture with you in the show notes. So be sure to visit there to see this engraving. Alan, my question for you about this man's work is whether all metal workers like coppersmiths, tinsmiths, silversmiths would each have their own individual shop. Or would they have worked for a larger corporation like these groups in Germany and northern Italy to produce things like guns and bullets? Well, the guild system in many German cities and many English cities as well would group craftsmen together so that rather than three or four men, there would be a guild of a dozen or 20 groups of three or four men so that they could buy and sell uh, in quantity and negotiate better prices. Then in Italy, there was a, there is a lot of element for subcontractors. People like the Missalia were businessmen, financiers, who put up the money to explore mines and build furnaces. And they employed subcontractors so that there would be someone specialized in arms, someone specializing in legs, and somebody who assembled the various elements of the armor into one whole. It was a it was a financial financially sensitive industry because you needed a lot of money to get it started in the first place. It's not an individual craftsman, although craftsmen of high quality would be retained for places like the Royal Armory at Greenwich, which made very armor in small quantities of very high quality and very high price. This was set up by King Henry VIII and continued by his daughter. So in Shakespeare's time, the Royal Armoury at Greenwich was still making very high quality suits of armour for individual customers who had to pay the Queen for a licence in order to then buy the suit of armour. And we are talking extremely expensive suits of armour for people who wanted to display their wealth. Ferraris, Lamborghinis, uh, Rolls-Royce armours not the sort of armour that the average infantryman might wear. The difference in price might be somewhere between seven shillings or ten shillings for the infantryman's armour and something like 50 pounds or so for the nobleman's armour. Enormous difference in quality because they use more expensive materials. They were made to fit like Savile Row suits. They were decorated with gilding and bluing. You can see the best preserved Greenwich armour is, I'm sorry to say, in America. It's the suit of the Earl of Cumberland in the Metropolitan Museum. It's very well preserved in something very close to its original state. 
An engraving held at the Science History Institute Library Collections is dated in the late 16th century and shows what's called an alchemical library. I'll link to this engraving in the show notes for today's episode so you can see it. But Alan, I want to ask you about the description of this engraving provided by the Science History Institute. They write, quote, the alchemical laboratory, because it had the power to separate precious metals from the baser ones they are typically found with, became an essential feature of the metallurgical enterprise, end quote. Alan, was there an association for Shakespeare's lifetime between alchemy and professions like being a blacksmith or a coppersmith? Well, not a direct connection. Craftsmen in metal would have bought the products of chemists. I think the distinction between alchemy and chemistry wasn't really made at the time. People practiced chemistry with a, for a variety of motives, but they were actually trying to make something. People who were trying to make gold, or very often what they were trying to do is make counterfeit gold, and people who distilled acids would both call themselves chemists or alchemists. The distinction between practical alchemy and purely speculative alchemy, I think, is a later one. The core activity in trying to make the elixir or the philosopher's stone or whatever it was distillation. If you distilled all sorts of things, you might get an interesting and useful product. And we find that the distillation of wine to make alcohol starts to become commonplace by the 14th, 15th centuries. And if you add some herbs, then you get the medicinal liqueurs, which had a ready market. But you could distill other things. You could distill minerals like copperas, saltpeter, and so on, and get strong acids. Mineral acids start to appear in the late 15th century, and they're used to etch steel. So you can make etched plates for printing purposes and etched decoration on armor. And the people who decorated armor earned by etching produced printing plates for publishers, were often closely related by marriage and finance to the armourers because they were practising similar proceedings to make something useful. What was the technology for extracting metals from the ground for Shakespeare's lifetime? And how is that process different from today? Would metal workers of the 16th and 17th century have used a coal forge, for example? Well, no, the, the technology isn't that different. It's the scale of the operation that's different. Uh, and therefore, the operating conditions and costs are different. But the chemistry is more or less the same thing. Iron ores are very widespread, which is why iron is cheap. And you put some iron ore into a furnace with charcoal and you heat it up. And eventually, you reduce the iron ore to iron. What you don't normally do is melt it. So you have a solid mass of reduced iron interspersed with slag, impurities from the non-metallic part of the ore. The medieval iron is always full of slag, which makes medieval iron brittle, but it's cheap, and therefore people used it despite its drawbacks. If you build your furnaces larger, we're talking about something like six feet tall, 10 feet tall, then you can run it at a higher temperature and you find it more easy to make 
reduced slag, higher carbon material, which is steel. Finding out how to do this is really the key to making armor successfully. This seems to have been achieved sometime in the early 15th century in North Italy and later passed on to other parts of Europe. People claimed to be making steel in England. Whether they were making steel or not is another question. A consortium of businessmen from the West Country tried to sell their steel to the English crown in the 1590s. The master of the armories had a breastplate made of this English iron, tested it with a pistol, and found it actually was very poor. The pistol bullet went through it. At the same time, imported steel from Germany was made into a corresponding breastplate and resisted the pistol shot. So the businessmen from the West Country didn't sell any steel to the crown. What they made, of course, was perfectly all right for domestic tools and farm implements and so on, but it would not make effective armour. The armour of the those who could afford it was made of steel because medieval iron is low in quality because of the slag content. Modern steel making, modern iron and steel making, depends upon melting the iron. So you remove the impurities, control the carbon content, and manipulate its properties by adding alloying elements. But this really does not take place until the 19th century. And it's a consequence not just of understanding the science better, but building bigger furnaces so you can run them at higher temperatures. The chemistry is still basically the same thing, but more, somewhat more refined. I read somewhere that meteorites were a source of iron for Shakespeare's lifetime. I'd expected metal to be acquired from a mine, but was there someone whose job it was to hunt for meteorites and extract metal from them? No, not really. Meteorites might have been known as curiosities, but they weren't a realistic source of iron. It has been said in recent years that the Greeks of Malaysia and Indonesia owed some of their magical properties to incorporating nickel. Uh, There's a, a very large meteorite in the East Indies, which is still being worked on to dislodge small pieces of meteoritic iron. However, we did analyze some crease some years ago, and very few of them have got nickel in. It's become something of a traveler's tale. But there were metal mining going on in England, or where did the blacksmiths and silversmiths get the metal that they were working with to create things like farm implements or teapots? Where, where did they source the metal in the first place? Well, the, the, there were plenty of ironworks in England, in the, the Weald of Sussex and the Forest of Dean. Shropshire, Cumbria, the north of England. There are plenty of iron workings, mostly making relatively small amounts for local customers, perhaps 50 pounds or 100 weight at a time. Iron making in on a bigger scale is very capital intensive and it tends to depend on there being a market for it. So it is not You find iron making in country districts, but it's on a small scale. It's only when there's a substantial market, which is usually urban in origin, that you get people trying to mass produce it. You try to mass produce it by building bigger furnaces, something like 10 or 15 feet tall. When you build bigger furnaces, 
you do have economies of scale, but because you're running it at a higher temperature, the chemistry of the extraction changes. So you get end up with a different product and you have to treat it differently. You've mentioned that the large furnaces that were like 10 feet tall was a totally different operation than the local town blacksmith. And I know that it was relatively common to have a blacksmith in a small town like Stratford-upon-Avon, for example. But what were the difference in products being produced? Where would a customer go? Why would they go to a blacksmith versus going to one of these larger furnaces? Were the larger places strictly producing products for the crown at, at large scale or, you know, and the blacksmith handled the individual items or what was the difference in what they produced? The first product of a large furnace, which we might call a blast furnace, although if you're using bellows, then arguably all furnaces are blast furnaces. The first blast furnaces in England were in Kent and Sussex and they made cast iron for um, producing cannon. Uh, the different product is because running at a higher temperature, the iron absorbs more carbon. Its melting point falls with increasing carbon content, whereas the operating temperature is rising, so you wind up with a liquid product. The liquid product absorbs more carbon, and you end up with cast iron, which is useful for a much more limited range of functions. It makes perfect, reasonably adequate cannon and things like firebacks, but it is brittle and doesn't make very good tools. So the, the, the considerable cast iron industry in the wheel was making, if you make cannon, you do have a fairly limited range of customers. You can sell some to the crown in England. You can export them to the crowns uh, abroad. I mean, we were exporting cannon to Spain as late as the 1580s before somebody decided this wasn't a very good idea. What you might be able to do with cast iron is decarburize it. There is um, now a growing body of evidence that decarburized cast iron was being generated in uh, medieval, late medieval France because there was a demand for iron for church reinforcements. The, the enthusiasm for building cathedrals taller and taller and taller until they fell down ended in the mid-13th century with the collapse of Beauvais. And in the 14th century and early 15th century, a lot of cathedrals in France were reinforced by the panicking ecclesiastical authorities by putting in circular bands of iron chains almost always out of sight in the Triforium, but it required a large amount of iron. In recent years, that more of this is being analysed and studied and connected to the iron industry, particularly in Lorraine. Whether there are iron reinforcements in English cathedrals, we don't know because nobody's looked. And blacksmiths would be primarily making things like horseshoes or like you mentioned copper pots that were lined with tin. Would someone like Anne Hathaway go get her kitchen pots from the town blacksmith? No, she would get them from a coppersmith. The technology is different. The craft techniques are different. People were very jealous about multitasking. She would go to a coppersmith for cooking pots and made sure they were tins. I mean, a tinkers were people who repaired these things. 
the blacksmith might buy his iron locally unless he was going to buy a very large quantity there would be no incentive to go and set up a black uh, blast furnace and make iron by the ton you you need large scale customers to do that so lots of blacksmiths lots of iron makers would be small scale lots of blacksmiths would be small scale making armor or casting cannon was a large scale operation using many people and in requiring a lot of capital investment so it's it's a separate market to the village blacksmith i know we would love to explore this topic further what are some of your books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more well there are quite a few Cyril Stanley Smith, famous Briton, later became American, professor of metallurgy at Chicago. In his retirement, finding life boring, no doubt, he started <laughs> writing books on the history of science. He edited with translators several classics of the 16th century. He also put together this history of metallography, which is now available, has been available for a few years as a paperback and is full of all sorts of interesting stuff. It's the best introduction that I can recommend to the subject. If you're interested in armour in Shakespeare's time, you might want to look at that. If you, I'm sure you can find a copy on eBay. It's the metallurgy of the armour made during the time of Henry VIII and Elizabeth at the uh, Royal Armoury at Greenwich. This is high-quality armour, made in small numbers for wealthy customers. What the average soldier got was something very different. And by a happy chance, my latest book has turned up this morning. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) That one. This morning. This very morning. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. The Oakshot Institute in Minnesota is uh, marketing it in um, the United States. So it'll be up on their website soon. That's fantastic. We'll be sure and link to that, as well as these others in the show notes for today's episode. Now, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, a lot of Wikipedia seems to be taken from 1911 Britannica. So why not go to the original? I'd take Encyclopedia Britannica with me. I've got the 1911 edition, and I still find it incredibly useful. I think that would be an excellent selection for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, what we are working on now, have been doing it for a couple of years, is the Oriental Armoury of the Wallace Collection. Wallace Collection is a national museum in London, which has the large collection of armour in London now, and one of the most important collections of Indo-Persian armour in Europe. Uh, a lot of this is, was simply acquired in the 19th century as curiosities, and now it's being catalogued systematically by uh, curators at the Wallace Collection, and we've analysed some of it, Uh, The metallurgy is very interesting and very different to European metallurgy. They they approach the manufacture of steel in a completely different way. It's actually 
working out how they were made is an extremely interesting problem which will keep me occupied for a few years. That sounds very exciting. Alan Williams, thank you so much for joining us this week to share with us the history of metals and armor making in England for Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a fun conversation and I appreciate you being here. You're welcome. Make sure you stop by the show notes for today's episode where you can see a picture of that 1613 gunsmith, catch that engraving of an alchemical laboratory, and find links to more information on Alan and the resources from the Wallace Collection, including those amazing books you heard him share with us today. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 190. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP190. If you enjoy our show, please be sure to leave us a comment and a rating on your favorite podcast platform and share the show with someone who might enjoy exploring the history of William Shakespeare. For video versions of our show, activity kits, and printable resources that coordinate with our podcast and with Shakespeare's plays, be sure to explore our membership area at castycash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.